Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we're going to discuss the executive orders by presidents and the growth of presidential power. Today, we'll lead off with Acts 16, verses 35 through 38. As usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. So with the power of our executive branch, both past and future, under the influence of the Holy Scriptures, let's just dig right in. Thank you, Randy, and uh, good evening to everybody out there in podcast land. To highlight this, we're going to start off with a quote from President Obama, which probably some of you out there will remember this. This is from his first term as president. Here's the quote. I've got a pen and I've got a phone. And I can use that pen to sign executive orders and take executive action. I've got a pen to take executive actions where Congress won't. Where Congress isn't acting, I'll act on my own. I've got a pen and I've got a phone. And that is all I need. Right there tells you the power of the executive order and its influence, among other things we'll look at, on the growing power of the presidency. Now, just to be fair, here's a quote from George Bush. I believe this was from his first term. We waited for Congress to act. They couldn't act on the issue. So I just went ahead and signed an executive order, which will unleash, and here there's an interruption of applause. That dies down. He continues, which says the federal agencies will not discriminate against faith-based programs. They ought to welcome the armies of compassion as opposed to turning them away. Now, we might say, well, is there a problem with that? And because it's a support of a good thing. But support of a good thing by the executive order still enhances the power of the office and gives the church a false sense of security that as a faith organization, we need the government's help to get Mm -hmm. our mission done. Mm -hmm. This is different from Paul using his Roman citizenship to hold government accountable, which in turn helped the Christian movement. So, Rainey's going to read Acts 16, 35 through 38. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. There you go. The power of Roman citizenship. Paul and Silas, Silas also a Roman citizen, had been uh, arrested and treated shamefully, beaten with rods, all these things in violation of their citizenship, whether they tried to protest that they were or they didn't get a chance to make that point. Paul is clearly upset about it, but also because he wants other Roman citizens who will be Christians coming by uh, not to be so treated. And of course, as a result of this, as we said, these things sort of flow down to the Christians then and act as a kind of a help to them. But he's not looking for government aid. Hmm. He wants his rights uh, appreciated. So the Christian expectation is this. Our first allegiance is to King Jesus who has full authority now and to come. Here's a familiar verse from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, that's pretty clear. Heaven and earth, that encompasses just about everything. It's asserted again, this time in the high priestly prayer for his disciples and all who would follow the disciples. John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's pretty clear again, and it fits into very neatly the command that we find in Matthew 28. Here is the declaration of John, the seer, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from whom, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth to whom loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The ruler of kings on the earth, present tense. He's the ruler, of course, obviously, a great many of them are in rebellion, but he's still the one who mm -hmm. uh, directs uh, at his will the nations. And then in chapter 11 of the same book, verses 15 through 18, we see how this will be universally proclaimed at his return. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their face and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Well, that's very clear as well. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign, uh, yea, for ages and ages, forever. We are to follow, first and foremost, the executive orders of Jesus. He's king, he's in authority. That's priority. And note this, he's not gaining power through the age or through the ages. He's already got it. Mm. He already has all power and authority, universally so. Now, this is not about the number of executive orders that presidents issue. Uh, that's You can count them up, but it's about their nature. Let me give you just one example, and you'll see my point. Uh, are executive orders constitutional as to war? This is from the constitutioncenter.org of December 2018. Listen to this quote. Quote, when President Obama approved the use of military force in Libya in 2011, it was the 132nd time that a president acted under the conditions of the War Powers Resolution since 1973. Uh, let me stop right there and just say, uh, that's when Nixon was president, he protested that, but Congress passed it. We'll see the problem now as we continue. The quote, it also seems unlikely that an official state of war could be declared in the new future due to the legal differences between a state of war and authorization of military force. Now, let that last sink into you. 
Basically, we're at a place where presidents make war like kings. That's what they're saying. And I've seen this and witnessed it over the decades of my own life. Controversy over executive orders as to the legality and use occurs throughout U.S. history, including Abraham Lincoln's, uh, of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, President Reagan, Obama, Trump, and now President Biden. And his executive orders are on a record-setting pace. Here we come, a quote from Fox News uh, this month, September 19th of this year. Quote, Biden currently sits at 99 executive orders since taking office. His torrent pace came primarily within his first year when he issued more than any president since the 1970s. End of quote. Well, even the New York Times, which is a notoriously way on the left, has issues with President Biden's executive orders. This is a quote from the Washington Post, quoting the New York Times, from January 29th, uh, 2021. Note, a year and a half ago. Here's the quote. The pace at which Barack Obama's former vice president has used his pen and phone to take major action has not only angered Republicans, but also the New York Times editorial board, which urged Biden this week to, quote, ease up on the executive actions, Joe. The office of the president has grown in power over the past century, and no matter who is in office, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Now listen to this. This is a, a writer named Jay Cost. He's reviewing a book written by Mitchell A. Sullenberger and Mark J. Rossell. It's called The President's Czars. That's, of course, Mr. Obama's administration. The President's Czars Undermining Congress and the Constitution. Here's the quote. An interesting quirk of our constitutional system is how it can be altered without amendment. And I've noticed that over the years. If a leader, usually the president, takes power for himself that is not strictly within the boundaries established by the Constitution, and the people do not complain loudly and long enough, then the founding document is effectively amended as a new precedent is established. This is the primary way that the country has developed an immensely powerful commander-in-chief, despite the fact that the Constitution dedicates less than 1,000 words to the executive branch. It has been in this matter that over the last 100 years, the scope of the presidency has grown. Enterprising chief cons uh, executives who innovate new pathways of power are met with little resistance, and thus the innovations soon become norms. Most presidents since TR, and I'm assuming they're res referring to Teddy Roosevelt, most presidents since Teddy Roosevelt have contributed to this process regardless of party or ideology. No president or political movement has ever reversed the trend, not even the Tea Party, <laughs> nor really ever tried, end of quote. Why does the power of one-man rule continue to increase? Well, on one hand, it is the accepting of Satan's offer, which he proposed to Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus overcame that, of course. And throughout history, he has offered the same to others and will in the future. Those who might be the next Nimrod, and we'll look at him in a little bit, Caesar, Napoleon, and then, of course, the Antichrist. Here is how that unfolds, this offer of power, one man rule. Luke 4, 5 through 8. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Love that phrase. It is written. Well, for Satan, even presidents are treated as kings, as emperors, every four years. However, we Christians want to make sure we don't succumb to the delusion of power, lest we become like the Corinthians. Note Paul's word to their desires and attitude in this passage from 1 Corinthians 4, 7-9. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And most of us know the situation in Corinth. They had an abundance of gifts. Uh, they were competing against one another. They thought they had arrived and all that, and that they were reigning, as Paul says, as kings. And he sarcastically adds, I wish that were the case so I could be there with you. But hey, I'm having my face drug in the gutter every day, along with the rest of my good buddies in this mission. So how's about you people shaping up? As others have pointed out, this is a good quote, lifetime is training time for reigning time. Let me repeat that. Lifetime is training time for reigning time. And we're going to look at reigning in the future when Jesus returns in a little bit here. Paul's point about the ragged life of the apostles makes it clear. Reigning time is yet to come. How can we explain this phenomenon, this desire to, to reign, especially eventuating in one-man rule? Sometimes, of course, throughout history, a woman, a queen. Let's take a look at this. The recent death and funeral of Queen Elizabeth, and though she had none of the powers of her namesake, Elizabeth I, Elizabeth I established Protestantism in England over Catholicism and, wait for it, defeated the Spanish Armada. Mm. No mean feat. Although writers point out that she may have had divine help in that with the storm and wind and all that. She had the sentiment of the people, Elizabeth I, and so did Queen Elizabeth II. Listen to this. At times, the line to go past her casket was five miles long, took 30 hours from at the end of the line to the front to get there. And as so many have pointed out, and I've been looking at them, reading them, she stayed above the political, which enabled, enabled her to be influential in other ways. Here's a question. Would this kind of funeral occur with either our current president dying or the last one if he died? No. We all know the answer <laughs> to that. Listen to this. And I appreciate this, and I'll explain a little later on why, because I've been on this route for some time. This is a quote from commentator Michael Barone, and I've read him over the decades. He's um, kind of a middle-road guy. He's not extreme left or right. But listen to this. This is from his column September the 22nd of this year. Quote, The funeral of Queen Elizabeth II and the praise pouring in from almost all quarters for her 70 years of service make a powerful case even for small-R Republican and small-D Democratic Americans for the institution of constitutional 
monarchy. Let me mention this again. She makes a good case for the institution of constitutional monarchy. There is much to be said for having a head of state, Barone goes on to say, who is politically neutral, culturally traditional, but open to popular innovation, personally embodying the traditional strengths of a nation. End of quote. Now, Mr. Barone, after discussing the ups and downs of monarchies of the last century and the practice in various democracies, such as India, Indonesia, South Korea, and the Philippines, of the son or a daughter succeeding their parent who was in office, hello, George and George Bush, Barone continues and concludes by saying, quote, apparently people still have a yearning for one individual to be a national symbol. So it's fortunate, not just for Britain and the Commonwealth, but for the world, that Elizabeth II set an example of how it should be done. And we would add, most do not. Where did all this king and queen stuff begin? And by the way, maybe everybody should send up a prayer for King Charles. This might be a chance for him to actually get his life uh, turned around because we all know the drama that's been in his life. Perhaps this <laughs> obligation upon him would do him some good. <laughs> but where did all the king and queen business begin? Let's start with Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There you go. Now, Adam and Eve made in the image of God. And in this context, when we ask the question, what is it to be made in the image of God? The context answers it. Now, there's other things that involve the image of God in mankind. But this is primary because this is the beginning. We see that granted to that image is rulership, dominion over everything as the king and queen of creation. Now, in the fall, they lost the necessary wisdom and righteousness to rule. So what do we see? Cain rules over Abel by force, and eventually, as we'll see, Nimrod is the king. One man rule over the masses in the building of the Tower of Babel. Here are three references from the Old Testament. I think they're the only ones that reference Nimrod. Give us a picture of who he was. Genesis 10, 9 through 12. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Notice, he's often associated just with Babylon, but he even went into Assyria and other places. A great conqueror, a mighty hunter before the Lord, hunting what? Animals? People? Seems like people primarily to rule over them. Now here's the same comment from First Chronicles 1.10 in the midst of their genealogies. Cush fathered Nibrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. There you go. How's that possible? How does one man rise up to rule of others? We're made in the image of God, but the image is bent. Then Micah 5.6. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. 
And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Thousands of years later, the land is still called the land of Nimrod. Mm. The man left a lasting impression. And the flood, you know, which happened uh, in the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 6, and uh, then the Tower of Babel with which Nimrod's associated comes after the flood. The flood doesn't change this move toward one-man rule since it's central to the truth of man being created in the image of God. For example, ancient rulers, B.C. times and even A.D. times, were essentially one man rules. One way or another, people went along, or had to go along, with one man who would tell them what to do. Sooner or later, everybody wants a king, just not the one that God has already anointed. The rule of God, and God is one, as king, is rejected by Israel for worldly kings. Here's a passage from 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 9. Listen to this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are all also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Right, and it'll be a hard reign as it turns out. So, listen to this. By popular vote, God's voted out, and Saul is voted in. We love the popular vote. We love the popular vote. So, the concession in, uh, to that by the God uh, is a surprise. A king Israel will ultimately get, and not just David, but the son of David. And that's begun to be prophesied. You want a king? You're not worthy, but I'm going to give you a king of which you should be worthy and may become worthy. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. Right. And of course, David's been long gone by this time. But as almost all commentators point out, and rightly so, this refers to the son of David to come, even Jesus. This is mentioned again in Hosea 3.5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Yeah, it's interesting, is it not? It's David, not Solomon. David, but David was the the uh, the major king, the first king in that sense, that really became a king and what a king's supposed to do. And the scriptures, the Old Testament, we're not going to take up time reading all of them, uh, refer to his rule as good. Absolutely. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David in the Gospels. And then as we get to the epistles, here's Paul stating that same truth in Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that's a great summary of the Old Testament. As uh, they uh, rejected God as king, but as it turns out, what goes around comes around, mm -hmm. and the Lord God, <laughs> the Son of God, who is God, becomes king. And he's the ideal king to come from the Old Testament perspective. Listen to this prophecy in Isaiah 9, 5 through 7, and ask yourself, would you want this man to be a king? For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There you go. That's the king to have. Starts off with the end of wars and all war clothing and utensils being done away with, and his righteousness rules. What are the qualifications for Jesus to be king? And they go basically also in this order, humility first, and then power to reign secondly. This is important because we'll see it applies to us as well. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There you go. When I was in the military, and I don't know, maybe Randy heard this too as well, when you had officers granted authority who had not gone through the process of the definite humbling that is needed, they were referred to as 10 gods. Mm. Yeah. So Jesus is not that. In fact, here is why he gets to rule. Listen to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that pretty well says it. He was humbled even to the humility of the cross, and because of that, he was resurrected and ascended to glory as the Lord over all. And then another summation of this by Paul again, a beautiful one, Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. Listen to this extended passage on the supremacy of King Jesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he was called, that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not only in this age is he supreme ruler, but the one to come, which will be absolutely different from this one, where righteousness, as the scriptures say, will fill the earth. So, the superiority of kingship over democracy is an interesting uh, theme to pursue. Here's a quote from a book that came across my desk a couple of decades plus ago, uh, entitled The God That Failed, referring to democracy, written by Hans Hermann Hoppe, H-O-P-P-E. And it's a rather involved book, but listen to this one quote. Under democracy, the social character and personality structure of the entire population will be changed systematically. All of society will be thoroughly politicized. Hmm. Well, we have come to that, I think, in this country, that's for sure. This is not to say that monarchies are perfect, hardly. It is to say that the Christian expectation is that the only the one man who is qualified should rule, and that rule is not democratic. It's based on biblical righteousness. It's not based on majority votes, but on the one who knows best. Solomon does have one psalm in the book of Psalms in which he extols the virtues of the kind of king that eventually needs to rule over planet Earth. Listen to these few verses from Psalm 72, 1 through 4, and then verse 17. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in his righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Note the role of justice, righteousness, and the treatment of the poor. The treatment of the poor, issues that in this country are always current events, and yet neither party can address that problem with success. People fall through the cracks of our democracy. And clearly the rule of one man, righteous and wise, who can make, in short order, judgments that bring justice and mercy is the kind of ruler to have. A democratic body, deliberative, however, takes, well, almost forever to reach a decision. Mm -hmm. But again, with the framers of our Constitution, and back in the day, this worked and made sense. It's not working well now. But they deliberately arranged a Constitution that it would take some time to put a new law into effect because they didn't believe in radical change. They want to make sure when change came, people were addressed to it, they had been educated, and they were ready for it and it had full support. Uh, these days, of course, everybody wants to be bipartisan. <laughs> and such a king is clearly superior over any other form of government. And it says bye-bye uh, to being bipartisan. Bipartisan seems to be a virtue, but what the Bible says, never bipartisan. It says righteousness, justice, treatment of the poor, and people get Lord, the, the kind of Lord that they need. Hmm. And so today, to paraphrase Hans Hermann Hoppe, this is my paraphrase of him. In a democracy, everything is political. Well, true. And we see that every day on TV, the internet, etc. Yes, everything is politics. However, politics 
isn't everything, and that's the point of Scripture. The right kind of ruler is. The qualifications for citizens in this realm of the king, what are they? Well, is it just be a good Democrat, be a good Republican, be a good Independent? No. In the kingdom that matters, which we need to be practicing now for the kingdom to come, listen to Jesus in these words of Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. There you go. And that's the kind of uh, political behavior that we need to develop in relation to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And note, this context in Luke 22 takes place during the Lord's Supper, the establishment of the Lord's Supper where they're arguing this, having an argument about who would be the greatest. Well, if they pass the test and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, this is what it takes to serve them. Verses 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So if they become servants, they will become reigns, uh, people who reign with Jesus. And the same qualifications apply to us who are Christians, who are followers of those original disciples. Service first, then ruling. Remember, we are saved to serve, but raised to rule. There's a faithful saying that went around the church, and I love these faithful sayings of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, because they tell us something about the general outlook of Christians as such because Paul approves of these particular sayings that he quotes that have arisen. He didn't originate them. They came from Christians and got published around the Roman Empire. Here's one from 2 Timothy 2, verses 10 through 13. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we die with him, a sign of humility and service, we will live. And if we live, then we will reign with him and be faithful in that. Uh, Revelation, of course, chapter 22 ends uh, basically with these words, the first five verses. I'm summing them up. And his servants will worship him and reign forever and ever. So, as we conclude, as the Lord directed let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray. This is from the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly referred to. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the Christian expectation. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about. and I'm sure there might be some questions and comments about it. We'd love to hear your questions and comments, so please send those questions or comments to our email address at eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations, all together at gmail.com. We'll use your question on air where possible, but we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. 
And until next time, keep looking up.